0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Michael Pollan has written about the microbiome, plant intelligence, and the American food supply. His latest topic, psychedelic drugs.
1: Transformation I'm, is fundamentally what I'm interested in as a writer, whether we're talking about wheat into bread or you know, nature into meals or, uh, or human transformation.
0: In today's show, the New York Times bestselling author describes how his research about psychedelic therapy became personal. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Murdoch Mind, Body, Spirit Lecture Series. It was held in Aspen, Colorado. Psychedelic therapy is being used in trials to treat depression, anxiety, obsession, and trauma. Michael Pollan began writing about it after he spoke with terminal cancer patients who use drugs to overcome a fear of dying. They were taking psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. In his talk with the Atlantic's Corby Comer, Pollan discusses his personal experiences with altered states of consciousness. For his book, How to Change Your Mind, Paulin immersed himself in the psychedelic experience, saying it helped him to become more open, emotionally available, less defensive, and patient. Paulin, who wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma and The Botany of Desire, says his latest book is his most personal. Here's Corby Kummer.
2: So... um. There was, whenever Michael writes something, The New Yorker published a piece called The Trip Treatment in 2015. And it seems a long time ago because it was, it was just a life-changing piece. It was long before his book. It was about uh, studying psilocybin at NYU among terminally ill patients, the first seemingly proven and effective treatment to overcome the fear of death. It was an extraordinary article, first of all because Michael wrote it, second because the subject was so new. And I wonder, um, because it went to consciousness, it went back to William James, it went back to the Greeks, immanence, materialism. Um, it seemed essential and also seemed like a very shrewd choice of subject for uh, a baby boomer book buying audience. Once again Michael got there first, but it led you down very interesting paths and I wonder how did you discover the story? Was it that story that set you to writing a whole book? Why did you decide, this is a book for me?
1: Well, that was the kernel of this book. I mean, often when I'm between, when I finish a book, I don't have like 10 ideas of what I want to write next. I have no idea what I'm going to write next. Um, but so I write some articles. And, uh, and between Cooked and this, I had written like three long articles, one on the microbiome, fascinating topic, um, but I realized it wasn't ripe for a book that everything we know about is going to be completely different in five years, and I didn't want to write even the in book. the
2: past two weeks yeah that's constant right. it's, studies it's, on the it's
1: just you know, subjects have a moment at which they're ripe or about to get ripe and and it clearly wasn't true of the microbiome. I wrote a piece on plant intelligence also for The New Yorker, which was fascinating but a little um thin scientifically, shall we say and um and then I hit on this story, and um, it was, I knew really quickly that there was a book in this. Um, so the story came about, um, well, it, it was interesting you brought up Botany of Desire, because uh, if any book has this sort of sourdough coach, culture that developed into this loaf, it was, um, it was that book. And there's a chapter in there, it's- See, it, he just thought of that himself. <laughs> There is a, uh, so that book is about this, the uh, symbiotic relationship between humans and plants, specifically domesticated plants. and the premise of it is is that plants manipulate us even as we think we're manipulating them, and that so the grasses have you know, persuaded us to take down a lot of trees um, by being valuable to us in various ways. And because and, that's their great enemy in, in, is, is shade, right, and trees. So they come up with different ways to get us, whether it's feeding us with rice and corn or gratifying our desire for order with lawns, they get us to do the job for them. And, um, and so I looked at several different desires that plants evolved to gratify. They get ahead by gratifying our desires. And the weirdest one, I mean, I, and I looked at beauty and nutrition, um, the weirdest one was the desire to change consciousness which turns out to be a universal human desire. Um, there is only one culture on Earth that doesn't use a plant or fungus to change consciousness, and that is the Inuit, the Eskimos, and the only reason they don't is nothing good grows where they live. <laughs> as soon as they move to Canada, they get with the program. And- and so I've always been curious about this desire. Like, why is it adaptive? It seems like it might not be. Um, and uh, so that's always been in the back of my head. I've had this interest in psychoactive plants. And, um, and then I heard this about this research. I read a piece in the New York Times where most article ideas actually come from. And, um, uh, and, and I was just blown away by the fact that they were giving psilocybin to people who had terminal cancer diagnoses. It seems like if I got a terminal diagnosis, the very last thing I would want to do is trip. And, um, but they were getting these wonderful results. And so I went in and started in- interviewing people in this, NY- it was, it, the trials were taking place simultaneously at NYU and at Johns Hopkins. And these were all people who had a cancer diagnosis, many of them terminal, but many of them just paralyzed by fear and uh, anxiety and depression. And, you know, in that situation, SSRIs, antidepressants, don't do much for you. And we really have very little to help people in that situation. And But I started talking to people who were having these uh, transformative experiences that completely reset their attitudes toward their death um, and allowed them to overcome their fear. And what uh, eventually turned out to be 67% of the cases. Um, So that was, it was my conversations with these people who were astonishing and hearing their stories that convinced me that I, as someone who was almost psychedelically naive, I had had very little experience myself, that I became intensely curious to understand what was going on in their minds and in their brains uh, that a single high-dose psilocybin guided psilocybin trip would completely change them uh, and uh, transformation I'm is fundamentally what I'm interested in as a writer whether we're talking about wheat into bread or um, uh, you know nature into meals or uh, or human transformation
2: and the transformation in the piece you if you read the the trip
1: uh, treatment, which appears very late in the book, actually about yeah four most of fifths, it's in the book at the in end. the therapy chapter, but it's also available online, uh, you know, for free. Especially
2: this morning, if you don't want to be carrying this, you will have a beautiful hardbound copy by the end of this evening. Um, but uh, it's it's easily available, downloadable when you're walking into town. The transformation was so profound for these terminal cancer patients of feeling they could walk toward the most threatening and most dangerous thing rather than being told to avoid or away. They simply went up, they faced it, they challenged it, they came out feeling in ways that they had licked it and they could be just fine. Going forward, so profound was transformation. When you go through your own uh, guided experiences and you talk to many of the researchers and tell us a little something about the rich, completely respectable scientific history that there was that's so interesting uh, to, to read about if, if you weren't aware of the hundreds of authorized studies that were taking place of LSD. And A so thousand studies from 1965. Yeah. Um, so go through that, please. But the question is the transformational experiences of these wonderful distinguished academics he's now going to their offices. Um, they're very you know well tenured professors. They have lots of trip experiences in their youth, and they seem to say it changed my life, it could it was course changing, but I don't need to do it again.
1: I'm not sure exactly what group are you talking about because that's the researchers in this work for the most part, do not acknowledge having had psychedelic experience.
2: Then I'm talking about the people you ran into at parties in Berkeley.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to be clear. Um, getting, getting the researchers to go on record about their own experiences was very difficult. Which I understand, because that's how medicine works now. But if you go back pre-1962, doctors routinely, researchers routinely tried drugs on themselves before they gave them to anybody else. It was the ethical thing to do. They didn't want to treat their patients like guinea pigs. So all, the, all this, there was, as you alluded to, this incredibly rich period of psychedelic research um, through the 50s and into the 60s, until you get to Timothy Leary and the counterculture. And that's what kind of stuck. That's what stops it. Um, But all those psychiatrists learned a lot by taking LSD and psilocybin themselves. Um, But you can't admit it if indeed it's the case now, I think, uh, uh, except at great cost to your reputation. But it is important to draw a distinction between um, what we call uh, recreational use and this kind of more um, therapeutic or guided use. And, and maybe I should just outline what a, what a guided uh, experience is, because it's fundamentally different um, and um, addresses some of the problems with um, what can be careless use of, of psychedelics um, in many cases. So a guided psychedelic experience is uh, one where you're attended by a guide who's a therapist uh, too very often if you're in, if you're in one of these above-ground trials. Um, and they're, they're trained therapists, as I said, and they will prepare you for what's about to happen. Many of these people have never tried a psychedelic who are, who are in these trials. And they'll tell you... Uh, what might happen, what to do if you get into trouble. They give you what they call flight instructions. Um, And so if you get very anxious, if you see something really scary, you're not supposed to try to run away or or escape it. You're supposed to go toward it. And um, if you feel yourself going crazy or your ego dissolving and your self falling apart, go with it, Um, surrender. Uh, you know, trust and let go. These are the kind of mantras they give you. And this is very important to avoiding the so-called bad trip, uh, which is often the anxiety that comes from trying to fight what's going on in your mind, and resistance is pretty much futile. Um, And uh, so that preparation is really important. I found it very, very important. Um, And then they also ask you to set an intention. Uh, if you're trying to address, say, your fear of dying, or your smoking addiction, or whatever whatever it is that you're trying to deal with. Um, so they have you set an intention. It doesn't always turn out to be at the center of the trip, but very often it will, that you end up dealing with those issues. Um, and they're, they're with you during the whole time. You're wearing eye shades, which to people who have a lot of experience with psychedelics seems all wrong. You know, you want to go out in the Aspen Groves and... Yeah, but the idea here is to have a very internal trip. So you wear eye shades, which turn out to be the, this incredibly powerful technology. It, it, I mean, you, I mean, if any of you have per, perhaps had experience with psychedelics, you know the I difference... I
2: admit it to you.
1: <laughs> well, I've come clean. Um, <laughs> The difference between having your eyes open and closed is night and day. Um, uh, so anyway, so you're wearing eyeshades and you're listening to music, a very carefully curated playlist. It doesn't have... Uh, it, it's mostly instrumentals and it kind of supports and underscores the arc of the, of the journey and, and cancels out a lot of distractions. Um, so they're with you the whole time, they'll hold your hand if you get into trouble, you get upset, they'll walk you to the bathroom, they'll give you some grapes if you get hungry. Um, And then after the experience, which on psilocybin, uh, which is what most of the research uses, not LSD for reasons we can talk about, um, uh, it lasts about six hours, and, um, and then you come back the next day for what is called an integration session. And that's essentially where a, a good therapist helps you make sense of what happened. Um, and uh, you tell the story of your trip, and they try to help you find things in it, nuggets that you can use, uh, moments of insight, epiphanies, that you can use to illuminate your life and, and, and apply to the conduct of your life. So this is a very different kind of experience than I think most people have had.
2: And it does seem like... Um short order psychotherapy even though
1: i'm sure psychotherapists
2: would just it would would hate that whole idea but it seems like you achieve results in a much more efficient way and a sudden way you didn't really experience a bad trip though you experienced some initial fear in one
1: of the one of the trips well i, I guess one i had so i had Five or six guided psychedelic trips for this book. Um, uh, On psilocybin, on LSD, uh, on DMT, which is the ingredient in ayahuasca, and um, uh, a very obscure psychedelic called 5-MeO-DMT, which is the smoked venom of the Sonoran desert toad. I know. I mean, how about a species that can figure that one out, huh? Give ourselves a hand. Um... (laughs) and that was the that was the most uh i would call that a bad trip i think um, it's it's not something i ever want to do again um it's such a, a sudden and violent uh experience of um i mean it all it just you you take a single puff uh on this on this pipe where this um, venom is being, it's, it's crystallized. N- n- no uh, toads are harmed in the making of this drug, by the way. <laughs> Just so you know. Um, They're petted. <laughs> you, you know, you gently squeeze these glands on the sides of these toads and, and on, onto a sheet of glass and overnight it it, um, uh, it crystallizes and it looks like brown sugar and then you burn that or, or your guide burns that. and. Um, I was very nervous about doing this. I was very nervous before every single one of these experiences. I had a sleepless night uh, of arguing with myself about, is this crazy? You know, you're a 60-year-old man, you're going to go up on this mountain with this guy you barely know, and uh, there's no um, telephone service. and uh, you know, if, if something goes wrong, is this guy really going to call nine one one? You know, um, so playing off these narratives to myself, and then the other side saying, "Well, you know, you could learn something really interesting about your mind, and you have a book to write." And uh, <laughs> and in every case, finally, I was able to embark on the journey, um, and I realized subsequently that that voice of caution was my ego, trying to protect itself from what was about to be an assault. On it. Um, And our egos are very clever and they command our rational faculties, um, but they're not always to be listened to. Um, So anyway, do you want to hear about the DMT trip? Yeah, so (laughs) I find if I give an audience a choice between hearing about a good trip or a bad trip, they always want to hear about the bad trip. Um, (laughs) Okay, we'll get to the good trip. So you take a a single puff on this And before you even lie down um, You are just shot out of a cannon And you experience um, You have nothing to orient yourself It's very hard to write about this Because not only is your sense of self Completely blasted to smithereens um, But your sense of time is too And your sense of place And you felt I I have to
2: interrupt you and tell the whole audience Who is going to memorize and buy this book tonight (laughs) The extraordinary recall you have of these trips. It's one thing to take notes when you're going through something. I cannot imagine how you took such detailed notes of things that are beyond our reckoning and in your case were very unpleasant and yet you evoke them as well as the good things, don't worry, good things, extremely specifically. How do
1: you do that? Well I didn't take notes during and I I do know people who've done that but I just could not, I couldn't think about it. And, um, but one of the things that's really striking is that um, this is not like r- dreams. I mean, you know, dreams, you know, you feel that undertow pulling your dream out of your memory, like as soon as you have it, as soon as you wake up. Here, it's indelible. I mean, the, um, the authority of the experience, uh, William James called it the, the, the noetic sense, uh, this sense that what you've perceived it has this objective truth um, that, and it's, it, it's unshakable. And, and I know, I've talked to people who haven't tripped in 30 years and they will tell me in, in sometimes excruciating detail about everything that happened. So it's a, it's a quality of the drugs um, that you can remember things. And um, uh, so what I would do after an experience is that night... Um, write an extensive diary of everything that happened and then when you have your integration session the next day you're telling the story and there's a process by which what is a little bit inchoate or very inchoate resolves itself into narrative through telling the story Um, And and there's some editing that goes on in that process
2: So you were able to go home and then, based on your integrative session, revise and shape your notes?
1: Well, uh, the first session would be right after, before I had my integration, write down everything I could And it would be like a, I don't know, 15 page single spaced account I mean it was very detailed, everything I could remember and then the next day I would tell the story and then I'd, I'd, I'd write more and it would gradually get more resolved. But the first person who helped me integrate was Judith. Um, you know, a- after every one of these events, we would sit down and have dinner and I would tell the story and it was enormously helpful. Um, and she would remind me that all oh, this connected to that in your life or um, uh, maybe this is what this means and, you know, help help me begin to interpret. But the frog the toad experience was uh it had no narrative to it 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 just was i felt like i was in this category 5 mental hurricane and just but there was no boundary my skull and the world were all in this chaos and it was a terrifying it was really it was your terrifying your first wasn't it what?
2: It was the first guided trip?
1: No, it, thank God it wasn't. I never would have had another. Um, I wouldn't have gotten the book written. Um, it's the third one in, in, the, uh, in the section, the travelogue section. And um, the, but the best thing about it, so I'm just in this swirl of energy. And there's no matter, there's no time, there's no self. And I don't know who's perceiving this exactly, um, but something's perceiving it. And but the best thing about it is it only lasts 20 minutes. Um, so very soon after, um, you start coming down. And I remember putting my hands on my thighs. I, I have a light blanket over me. And I'm lying down on a cushion. And I was like, oh, I have a body. And then I put my hands on the ground. It's like matter. There is matter. And then time, because I realized a little time had gone by since I touched the ground. And um, And this terror was succeeded by, and this is why I'm not sure it's a bad trip, by this profound sense of gratitude. Um, Not only that I was alive, we've all expressed gratitude for being alive, I think. I I felt gratitude for the fact there is anything. (laughs) (laughs) That there is something rather than nothing. Because I had had a taste of what nothing might be like.
0: Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Today's moderator, Corby Cummer, is the editor-in-chief of Ideas, the magazine of the Aspen Institute. The magazine is available for free online. It chronicles the work of more than three dozen institute programs and tells the stories of our onstage speakers. Learn about health, security, the economy, and innovative ideas in the latest issue. Find it at aspeninstitute.org magazine. That's aspeninstitute.org slash magazine. Let's get back to our featured conversation. Here's Corby Kummer.
2: And yet in a later trip, and they are pleasant, but he's just given you the only bad experience he personally describes, you describe seeing something that looks like it's steel beams, it's a rectangular superstructure over a loamy earth, a rich earth, and you realize it is your ego, it's reminiscent of the erector sets of your childhood, and when it floats away, you're perfectly fine with that. And you think, you, you don't think, oh, I've gotten rid of some horrible heavy appendage I never wanted, you think that's fine too. Um, you're able to make sense of these in very useful, helpful ways that seem interesting to your personality. Can you imagine, since the guiding experience is so essential, have you, did you stop to imagine what would this have been like if I hadn't had the integrative session?
1: You know, I think the value of the guided experience, and I should say, we haven't mentioned this, that I I did not participate in any of these above-ground trials at NYU and Johns Hopkins. This is, in my case, I had to find what are called underground guides. And I learned in part of my research that there is a a fairly large community of therapists who use psychedelics um, at great personal risk. And um, so that's who I was working with. Um, and I found my way into this community, both on the West Coast and the East Coast. And, um, uh, but I think many people have had powerful psychedelic trips that they, especially when they were kids and teenagers, where their friends, when they said, oh, I saw God, or I had this transformative experience, their friends just said, you had too many mushrooms, you know. And a lot of people have put this experience in a box labeled weird drug experience. And, And, um... But when you do it with the guide, there's a premise that it does mean something. And it's worth thinking about. Um, and indeed, that what happens to you is it's not a product of the molecule you've taken. I mean, LSD or psilocybin doesn't have, imply any imagery of erector sets floating over the, the earth. Uh, it's you. I mean, you've, act, you've, you've activated something in your mind. You've released something. It's, it's you know, it may be, maybe it's your subconscious or... Or unconscious or, uh, I mean, depending on your theory of where, you know, things come from in your mind. Um, So I I think that when you start from that premise that this is your mind telling you something um, or revealing something to you, then you're intensely curious to try to figure out what it is.
2: And yet you have this, uh, I guess, saying, it's a truism. You may not get the trip you want, but you get the trip you need. So you may go in with an agenda in this guided session um, to overcome a certain fear, or we should talk about addiction therapy because those are ongoing trials. But it, it might not necessarily end that way. In retrospect, do you think that you did get the trips you needed, and can you imagine having a, an understanding task at hand that you would wish to engage in another guided trip to, to understand?
1: Yeah, um, I, I could see, you know, I'm kind of done with this part of my life of having these experiences, I think, at least for now, and I have to be very careful right now, but let's say that this were permitted. And that um, in the next five years, there's a fairly good chance that psilocybin and MDMA or ecstasy will be approved as medicines. I know that's kind of an outrageous prediction, but um, we're closer than you might realize to this happening uh, for reasons we can, we can discuss. Um, if it were legal, um, I could easily imagine doing this, having one of these experiences every year on my birthday, Um, just as a really useful stock taking, you know, where, where am I in life? What am I struggling with? Um, my dad just died in January and if I were having a trip now, I think, you know, a lot of it would be about that and, and that would perhaps be my intention to somehow make further contact with him. Um, uh, so you know, you, you talk about um, therapy on steroids, or, you know, fast forwarded, it, and, and, I, and you hear that from a lot of people, that this experience was like five years of therapy crammed into an afternoon. And there is some truth to that. Um, it basically breaks through any boundaries you have, um, any, any defenses you have. Um, when you have a high-dose, ego-dissolving psilocybin experience, Everything that you have trouble talking to your therapist about is just blasted. Uh, it's just, so people open up very, you know, very quickly. And and uh, on MDMA, which is not a drug I deal with at great length in the book, which is being used to treat trauma uh, with, with su- amazing success, actually, post-traumatic stress, um, the uh, the bond that's created between the the patient and the therapist is instantaneous, and, and the level of trust because these this drug leads to a flood of oxytocin in your system, which is a you know the bonding hormone. Um, so there is a sense in which they do speed up therapy for some people, not probably not for everybody. You
2: remind me of something that my own late father, a GP, would say. He had these wonderful maxims and it was when we were worried would we be able to cope with uh, the death of a dear relative or something he would say you know the mind won't go beyond what you're able to handle so don't you just don't have to worry about that because however traumatic you think something is going to be you'll be able to handle it but in this kind of explosion of consciousness that dismantles like your your third trip does does psilocybin go beyond what you think you're able to handle? You're very well defended, you're a very well integrated person, so you were able to
1: handle it. Did you hear stories of people not being able to cope? Yeah, there are people who have experiences that they're not ready for. And there are a couple, um, that sometimes that involves a childhood trauma. Um, a childhood trauma that someone perhaps has buried and isn't aware of, is only dimly aware of, will sometimes surface. And that can be incredibly destabilizing. It can be the beginning, though, of a, a very positive therapeutic process. Um, but I, did, I didn't I did meet some people who had had that experience. Although one person I, I met who was healed by it, um, who had had a... Um, a a, a fatal, or in 75% of cases, fatal autoimmune disease. She was bedridden, could no longer walk. It's, I forget the name of the, sclerodoma is the name of the disease, where your, uh, your cartilage or uh, connective tissue gets harder and harder until you're frozen, and she already she could not walk. She was bedridden through a long set of, in, in desperation, she'd reached out to a, a, an institute that gives people ayahuasca in Peru, and by the time she was approved for a, a scholarship, she was, um, uh, she couldn't get there anymore, she couldn't travel, so they very kindly sent it to her, and with her caregiver, she had a series of of ayahuasca experiences in which she, she had been adopted, uh, she's Korean, and she'd been adopted by Americans in Arkansas, And she got in touch with the fact that her father had raped her repeatedly when she was quite young. And um, having gone through that experience, though, which was incredibly painful, she had a series of these trips, and over time, um, she was released from this. um, And that autoimmune disease, some people believe, is, is the self attacking the self, sometimes because of guilt and shame and that she had taken on the shame for this episode and was attacking her body. Uh, that's at least how she understood it. But she walks now. She's fine. <laughs> I, mean, I know, it's an incredible story. And um, uh, so, and it wasn't, the, it was, it, it, she wasn't cured by ayahuasca. I don't want to suggest someone was cured by ayahuasca, but she, was, she surfaced a memory that by dealing with that memory cured her.
2: Can, can we talk, that's, Quite a striking story, and you tell it. Um, can we talk about less lord like cures? Um, because you're very high on legalization, not because you think it's wonderful recreational, because you've seen the uses, the potential utility. And I, could you talk about utility in, in addiction, for example, and beyond a recreational use? Is it, is it fear of death and addiction? What
1: else? So, I, I want to clarify. I, I'm not sure that I favor legalization, uh, but I, I do Life in the sense that... No, in, not in the sense that we've legalized uh, cannabis in this state in my state, um, which is to say anybody over 18 can have access to it. I do support research leading to FDA approval of the drugs, so that's a slightly different thing. I mean, it's a form of legalization, but I think they need to be very tightly regulated. I think that there's, uh, I think that people need to work with licensed guides. Um, I think that would be the best way to, to bring it to the public. Um, I do think there's a place in the lives of people who aren't mentally ill that can benefit from these drugs, so we have to figure out how to do that. Um, But straight-up legalization, I'm I'm not sure that's the best idea. Um, In terms of the applications, um, there have been trials uh, using psilocybin uh, for several different indications. One is uh, fear and anxiety of people with cancer diagnoses. um, And phase two trials have been completed, and they were very successful there. They've been used in pilot studies to deal with alcohol addiction and smoking addiction. The smoking study was kind of incredible. It was a small sample. It's like 20 people. This was done at Johns Hopkins. Uh, These are, you know, smoking is one of the hardest addictions to break. Um, And they achieved, uh, let's see, a 60-plus percent abstention rate after a year, uh, six months or a year. The, The standard that we have, the drug that we have that we treat, Smoking addiction with, has a 20% success rate, so really dramatic. Now, we, we have to see if this can be duplicated in larger studies. So how did that work? Um, you know, I, I, I found that really implausible. Why should one drug help with addiction to another drug? Um, what appears to happen, and I interviewed a lot of the people in the smoking studies who who told me these kind of crazy stories. They were very different than the cancer studies. I remember talking to this one woman. She's an Irish woman, she's about 60. I don't think she'd ever used psychedelics and she had a high dose experience to deal with smoking. She said she, uh, she described an experience in which she grew wings that allowed her to fly all through European history. She, she witnessed these incredible scenes of European history. She saw her, her uh, she died three times, uh, and she saw her uh, body rise from the Ganges, from a funeral pyre on the Ganges. And she, was, she witnessed the birth of creation. She's telling me this incredible travelogue. And then she said, and after all that, it just seems stupid to kill yourself with cigarettes. There were. <laughs> There were so many amazing things to do and see in this world. Now, I'm sure she had been told or thought herself that smoking was stupid before that happened, but she didn't believe it in the way she now believed it. And this goes back to that noetic quality that I was mentioning, that these insights or epiphanies have the force of revealed truth. And I heard from one smoker after another, like, I realized, my breath is precious, um, why would I be want to kill myself? These are some of the
2: starkly banal revelations yes. you called them. I couldn't believe how banal these were compared to the NYU transcendence.
1: Yeah, and well, people dealing with death have more profound um, realizations without question, but... Um, there's a fine line, though, between banality and profundity. I mean, that's one of the things I learned in my own experiences. And you know, I had this one experience uh, on LSD, and I was trying to describe it. And and writing about these experiences was probably the the, the sternest literary challenge I, I've ever faced. Um, and I had these. Uh, it was a weird experience. It wasn't what I expected LSD to be like at all. It was a very kind of psychological experience where you know, I just thought about people in my life, I thought about my wife and my son and my sisters and my parents, and, and I felt this, like, incredible, um, this channel of love had opened up. And um, that's a very embarrassing thing to write down. And, you know, it's, and I sound like a Hallmark card talking about this. But then I realized, well, you know, actually, you know, and, 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 and I had this thought as this experience was happening, this is not uncommon on psychedelics, that the most important thing in the world is love that's a banality but it's also profoundly true and um, and and psychedelics takes you right to
2: that edge and well, it comes up again and again it's the overwhelming force the fact of discovering that helps people not fear death anymore it can overcome
1: any challenge um, and what it is I think is the um, putting down of defenses I think I think if the drugs do one thing is they soften the ego structures or or um, or obliterate them in some cases and it is our ego that keeps us from feeling things that that you know wreathes us in irony and the feeling of been there done that and, and the familiarity of you know our brains are tuned for novelty right I mean which makes very good sense from an evolutionary point of view there are new threats in the environment you have to observe changes in your environment but we downplay the familiar, which is often the most important things, uh, such as love for people in our family. And um, and psychedelics revalues that, and the familiar suddenly becomes something really rich that you want to explore. And um, especially, again, when you have the eye shades. If you don't have the eye shades, you're going to gravitate to novelty. <laughs>
0: Our sister podcast, Aspen Insight, is out with a new episode. Uganda in East Africa has more startups than any other country in the world, but many Ugandans aren't entrepreneurs by choice. A lot of that activity is being driven by necessity-based entrepreneurs. It's people that don't really have another choice. Randall Kempner leads the Aspen Network of Development Entrepreneurs. He says the number of young people searching for work dramatically exceeds the jobs available. His program is working to create a more supportive environment for entrepreneurs so they can grow. Learn about Kempner's efforts by searching for Aspen Insight in your podcast player. Here's the rest of today's discussion. Corby Kummer.
2: To me, and probably to many readers, it will be very striking that research was going gangbusters in this it was um, was LSD synthesized in one thousand nine hundred and thirty eight yeah and it was being used for everything regularly for alcoholism, no and for yeah. schizophrenia and this was going to be the miracle drug. there was all kinds of uh, scientific ferment happening, great excitement, and then wham, clamped down, uh, mostly over Vietnam, counterculture, fears of insurgency. Uh, and, and did you find yourself wondering, what if that hadn't happened? Where would we be
1: now? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so this was all news to me. I mean, for me, Psychedelics shows up in the 60s. It's a product of the 60s. The word psychedelic is a 60s word. Actually, it's not. It's a 50s word coined by an English psychiatrist working in Saskatchewan to describe these drugs. And it simply means mind manifesting. Um, there were many people, even establishment people in psychiatry, who thought LSD um, was um, a game-changer. uh, And in fact, the study of LSD opens up a whole branch of brain science. We really didn't understand neurotransmitter networks uh, or the fact that we had these neurotransmitters in the early 50s when this research really gets uh, underway. But the fact that LSD could have such profound effects on the brain in such tiny doses measured in micrograms was an indication that there was a receptor network and they went looking for it and found it. And... um, and, and the serotonin receptors are the same ones implicated in the, in the classic psychedelics. So, yeah, we lost about 30 years. The research is shut down uh, after the 60s. It, it dribbles on into the 70s for a few years, and then it stops. And um, given what we're learning now, I think we could have saved a lot of suffering. Um, uh, I think that we have here potentially a powerful new tool... Um, for psychiatry and for mental health care. And one of the things I didn't realize when I started out um, was how broken mental health care is in this country and how, how much suffering there is. Um, uh, that rates of depression are rising worldwide. Depression is now the leading cause of disability around the world. Suicide rates are, are climbing. Addiction, we know w- what a serious problem that has become. And we have very few tools. If you compare mental health care to any other branch of medicine, whether you're talking about oncology or cardiology or infectious disease, all of which have diminished suffering, lengthened lifespans. You can't say that about mental health care. We're not moving forward. Uh, And the last innovation was the SSRIs in the late 80s and early 90s, the antidepressants, uh, which don't work for very long when they do work, and people don't like taking them. They have trouble getting off them. so there is a, there's a desperate need for new tools. And along comes the renaissance of this research, um, which many of the researchers I talked to really believe could be a revolution in mental health care. Um, and for, not for schizophrenia, although that was experimented with in the 50s, but for a series of mental illnesses that, are, that share certain characteristics. One is um, excessive rigidity. The rigidity of the addict, who's stuck in grooves of behavior and thought, that's very similar to the rigidity of the, depres- de- the depressive, who's um, stuck in stories you know of um, lack of self-worth, not, not worthy of love, um, and uh, people who are obsessives of one kind or another. My guess is eating disorders, which will be trialed soon, will yield to this. Um, As one researcher put it, the psychedelics have the power to shake the snow globe uh, of your mind and um, essentially break patterns, um, patterns that are being reinforced by certain structures in your mind um, that can get uh, overactive, many of which are linked to your ego. Um, And uh, so we we have something potentially very powerful here. Um, the research, none of which is being paid for by the federal government. It's just too controversial. They're working with psilocybin because that's less controversial than LSD. It's not necessarily more effective. Didn't
2: one study sneak in under the National Institute of Mental Health wire and somehow it's chugged long below the radar?
1: Well, some of the labs have money, and even from NIDA. Uh, so some well, of the people are on, on NIDA funds, but I don't know that NIDA knows that. Um, uh, don't tell. Um, so it's all been private money, um, and yet enough private money has been raised that we will get phase three trials, which is the last step of using psilocybin for depression um, and, uh, and to treat the dying, which is very exciting. So the FDA has been remarkably encouraging of this work. Um, I think they understand the need for new tools, and, um, and that's why I think that in five years or so, we may find that uh, these amazing substances will be approved.
2: Questions.
1: You started by saying you entered this story because it was right. But it's a very different moment than the story of food, where agribusiness and the food industry had come in, and then the locavores in Chez Panisse came in to show um, what had happened when you had scientific reductions and in industry to over how we eat here. That hasn't happened yet. I'm wondering what, what you think might happen when the pharmaceutical industry and the um, insurance do Yeah. Excellent question. Um, you know, I spend a little time at the end of the book trying to play out some scenarios of how these um, medicines might enter our culture. Uh, and they're going to be very hard to fit in to either what big pharma does and knows how to do, and likes to do, which is sell you a pill you have to take every day for the rest of your life, right? These are, you're going to only have to have one, two, or three of these experiences, so three pills is not something they're going to invest in uh, per person, and... um, uh, plus, there's no IP. The intellectual property, psilocybin, is in a mushroom that grows around here. And LSD is off patent. And MDMA is off patent. So how are they going to have that level of control? There will be instantly generic drugs. Um, and that's why big pharma is not investing. Uh, they're watching it closely. Um, I, you know, I did a couple interviews that suggest that their strategy is, as soon as a small company figures out how to do this, and there is at least one small company working on that, they will just swoop in and buy it. That's how they innovate these days, which is actually the same as the food industry. No real innovation on the part of the big companies. They just purchase startups. Um, But, you know, psychotherapists too are gonna have trouble with this business model where, you know, you're not gonna come back every week for years, and um, so it's a challenge all around. There's a, there's a company in England called Compass Pathways that is um, uh, conducting trials beginning this summer of psilocybin in treatment-resistant depression, working with uh, eight different sites around Europe. And their plan is to offer a package of training for guides and therapists, um, uh, a room, the design of the room, we didn't talk about that, but the setting is very important too, and integration Uh, And that they're going to offer this package to behavioral health clinics, national health services, and they're convinced that that package will be cheaper. Even though it involves, you know, a lot of hours of therapy over a very short amount of time, that they can devise a package that will uh, be more effective in treating treatment-resistant depression, which by definition nothing is working for, Um, and... uh, and that that will that you know they've got an idea for a business model we'll see but it's it's going to be a challenge um and uh but a good challenge i mean you know there's the system we have isn't working
0: hey <laughs> so as someone who likes good stories i was curious if you could tell us a little bit more about your good trip
1: oh thank you <laughs> <laughs> so the best trip i had and the most transformative one was on a it was a guided psilocybin trip with a guide I call Mary in the book. And um, it was a high dose. I was trying to to simulate the dose in the above ground trials, uh, like roughly 25 milligrams of of synthesized psilocybin or four or five grams of dry mushroom. And it was a a powerful trip. It wasn't all positive. Um, I had a period. uh, The music shapes your experience in powerful ways. And um, the underground guides have really shitty taste in music. (laughs) I, I don't. I don't. I shouldn't generalize like that, but it was this. And they're banal. Yeah. yeah banal. Yeah. And so it's this. It's kind of like spa music. It's, it would be fine if you were getting a really good massage, but you're exploring your like inner resources, and it's not what you want to hear. But how about
2: the heavy metal that made
1: you think <laughs> no, it, just of metal? <laughs> so Thierry David uh, was. They were playing, and this and the and it was so insipid, and it was and I thought it was electronica. It turns out it wasn't long story behind that but um and it was generating this 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 video game dystopian video game environment that I was going through with these black stalactites and stalagmites like you might see in a recording studio of foam you know like looks like that and uh, 80s disco yeah 80s disco and I was trapped in it and and I, I really wanted to get out and I asked my guide to change the music and anyway at a certain point I got up uh, I had to. Uh, it was getting kind of intense, and I realized this. I could really get panicky about this. I'm trapped in a world I don't like, and I. So I took off my eye shades, and it was the most amazing thing I saw. The, everything in this room was just jeweled with light, and every beam of light was coming right to me. And uh, I got myself with her, Mary's help, to the uh, to the bathroom, and didn't dare look in the mirror. And I, I told this story to a group of people who are in a psychedelic society in San Francisco and they were like, oh yeah, trip face, you don't want to go there. <laughs> I've never heard that expression, trip face. So, <laughs> um, uh, so I didn't look there and uh, as I say in the book, I produced this spectacular crop of diamonds uh, and then... Um, Came back and lie down, and oh, and and I and I, Mary asked, "Would I like a, a booster dose to get up to the four or five that we'd agreed on?" And I said, "Yes." And this really weird thing happened to Mary. I looked at her, and she was squatting next to me on this cushion where I was, and she had she she had long blonde hair parted in the center, and she had been transformed into a Mexican Indian with black hair, leathery brown skin, high cheekbones. And I I knew exactly who she was. She was Maria Sabina, who was this Mexican curandera who gave the first Westerner a psilocybin trip in 1955. And I didn't think I should tell her what had happened to her. And um, so I I took the additional dose. And then I experienced something I'd never experienced before, which was um, uh, my sense of self, just kind of, um, this is before the toad, uh, experience but it was like I had become this little cloud of post-its um, and just these little <laughs> yellow pieces of paper and but I but I had no desire to pull it all back together and reconstitute myself and and then there was this other perspective and like who who's perceiving this dissolution of who I was and that's a paradox that I, I still can't understand but um, and then I looked out again and I had turned into this coat of paint and I was just painted over the landscape, and that was me, and I was fine with it. And this other perspective, which was incredibly calm, um, uninvested in what was happening, was fine with whatever there was. I don't know what this is, but it's what I think Huxley in, in Doors of Perception talked about the mind at large, this, this kind of more universal consciousness that you feel like you can borrow or have access to. And um, and then there was myself and and it was no more and i was i had this other perspective so i didn't know what to make of this and i went back for my integration the next day and um, and i stayed in this dissolved ego situation i had this amazing experience finally with a great piece of music i got married to put on a bach unaccompanied cello concerto and a suite and i i merged with the instrument i merged with the music i was Absolutely, one with Yo-Yo Ma's bow, which was just kind of rubbing over me. It was, it was incredible, and uh, <laughs> um, and I said to her. Um, so I'd had this. I told her about this experience, and I said, okay. So I, I, ha- what was significant was I, had ex- I had an experience of being in the world without an ego, and it was okay. And she said, well, that's. Don't you think that's worth the price of admission? And I said, yeah, but my ego is back in patrol and in uniform again, and so what good is that? And she said, well, now that you've had a taste of that perspective, you can cultivate it. And I asked her how, and she said, through meditation. And meditation is is often the, the best way to apply the kind of thinking mode of consciousness that you that you taste on a psychedelic experience. And a lot of Buddhist... American Buddhists began with psychedelics and ended up with meditation. So that's what I've been trying to do. But it gave me a a distance on my ego um, that was incredibly valuable. And I realized that with my ego came these defenses that got in the way of openness and emotion and I don't want to go all the way down that path. But are you making
2: this meditation which you talk about in the book as I mean not like a booster shot, but as a way of
1: continuing into the everyday realm? Yes. It's a way of applying what I learned, but it's also a way of reconnecting with it. You know, I had a powerful experience that was quite beautiful and it was one of the most transformative experiences I think I've had in my life. But it's 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 I don't want it to fade away. And and through meditation, I can I can grab hold of it. Not not every time, uh, not do reliably. You, do you
2: find that the meditation
1: is uh, something you need to practice on a regular basis, or are you able to summon it through meditation no, at I, will? I, it's like a muscle. You do need to practice it. So I do meditate uh, every morning and uh, almost every morning. Um, and I need to get more serious about it. I mean, one of the things that's come out of this book for me is to go on a meditation retreat and get. Definitely get more serious about it. One of the interesting things um, uh, that I learned is we didn't really, we don't have time to go into the neuroscience of everything I've been describing, which is a big part of the book. Um, But when they began scanning the brains of people on psilocybin, they would give you psilocybin and slide you into an fMRI machine, which is a horrible thing to contemplate. (laughs) Um, But we have to thank these brave volunteers for doing it. Their brains, the same parts of their brains were deactivated that are deactivated in the minds of very experienced meditators. Uh, Something called the default mode network that's very involved, implicated in the generation of the sense or illusion of a self. Um, And uh, so there are there there's a real there's a there's a neurobiological kinship between meditation and. Psychedelic, uh, the psychedelic trip,
2: and there's a scene where you have 22 or something electrodes attached to your brain, yeah. and you have your own deactivation moment because you have a very pleasant and interesting experience that with your uncanny ability. You can recall and write about. I still can't believe that. And evidently, the researcher on the other side of the wall says, "What in the world were you thinking? There was like no stimulation coming."
1: Well, th- this is a, a meditation researcher a neuroscientist named judson brewer um who's got a terrific book out called the craving mind it's about addiction and the default mode network and um uh he has created a a kind of neural feedback machine where you put on this bathing cap that has 128 electrodes and they're all focused on one particular node of the default mode Network called the posterior cingulate cortex, which is involved in where you tell stories to yourself about who you are, and you take information from experience, and you um, tie it in. So, so if I showed you a, a list of adjectives, um, you know, cheap, handsome, courageous, uh, you know, depressed, whatever, and just ask you to look at them on a screen, nothing would happen in the posterior cingulate cortex. It wouldn't light up. But if I said, think about how these adjectives either apply to you or don't, you would start making little stories, and it would light up. So it's the kind of enough about you part of your brain, right, and it's very self-obsessed. And so he has this machine where you can, with various exercises, either increase or decrease the activity in it. And as an experiment, I thought, I, I told him, he was giving me various, you know, try meditating, do a loving-kindness meditation, and that lowered the, you know, lowered the activity, uh, things to get you off yourself. And I tried something without telling him, which is just recollecting one of my trips, uh, one of my ego-dissolving trips, and just remembering it drove down the activity dramatically in this in this particular part of the brain so that's you know memory is very powerful you 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 activate the exact same parts of your brain that are active when you're actually having the experience um so that's a that's a powerful resource for healing that we don't do very much with
2: and we can all we're out of time. And so we can think about trying to apply all those lessons. Read this. I'm going to learn how to meditate. If you were not dazzled and impressed by Mikealam coming in, you certainly have been this evening.
1: Thank you thank very you, Corby, much. Corby, thank you so much. Thank you for your great questions. Thank you.
0: Michael Pollan is the author of How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. Corby Kummer is a senior editor at The Atlantic and author of The Joy of Coffee and The Pleasures of Slow Food. They spoke on August 1st in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenan and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Aspen Community Programs hosted The Conversation, which was part of the Murdoch Mind, Body, Spirit series. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.